Grab your Bibles, Joshua chapter number 20. We've got a couple more weeks. We're going to be spending in the book of Joshua. And I'm going to ask that you uh, turn there with me. Up until about 190 years ago, the islands of Hawaii, ruled by king or queen, historically back hundreds of years, had one of the strictest policies ever known in, in really the empire of humanity, so to speak, as far back as we can go. The king or queen of Hawaii, it was so strict about any commoner getting close to them that uh, many Hawaiians lost their lives through hundreds of years. I mean, it's one thing to have secret service, but it's another to go to the extreme situation that Hawaii had until actually 191 years ago. For up until 191 years ago, if a commoner touched any piece of property of the king or queen, they would be immediately executed, no trial, no recourse. If they ever came in contact with the king or queen, immediate execution, no trial, no recourse. If they walked in the footprint of a king or queen, immediately executed, no trial, no recourse. It gets better. If a citizen of the Hawaiian Islands were to cast a shadow, just their shadow, upon the king or queen of Hawaii or any of their possessions, immediate death, no trial, no recourse. But there was good news. The news was that if they could get to, and I want you to know, my Hawaiian language is not the best, but I've been practicing for six days. If they could just get to the Puhu Anawa, how'd I do? Yes! The Puhu Anawa, which literally meant a place of refuge. There was a priest that could absolve them in a ceremonial service of washing. And I share that with you because that's very much reflective of what we have in Joshua chapter number 20. Nine incredible verses that give us a picture of a moment in Israel's history that was coming to full fruition. It was a picture that had been forecast for many years. In fact, when you take your Bibles and you go back to Exodus 19 or you go to Exodus 21 or you go to Numbers 35 or you go to Deuteronomy 19, all of those are forecasts, kind of a prophetic utterance, if you will, that God had shared with Moses and others that when we finally get all of my children settled into the promised land, they're gonna have some special locations that if they have done something by accident, like taking another individual's life, it was unintentional, chopping wood in the woods, an ax head flew off, hit someone with it and killed them, an accidental, unintentional kind of situation that, uh, hey, there's gonna be a place of refuge for them. 
In fact, maybe in your Bible, depending on what translation and what Bible you're holding today, maybe you have as your subcaption a little, just, uh, just a few little words going into the 20th chapter. Maybe it says cities of refuge. But today I want us to read about those. And I want us to talk about that. I think these cities are very important, not just because of the historical narrative, but because this whole chapter says something about our relationship in Christ and how he places us in a very significant place of security and safety and refuge. Being a history guy, I love the narrative and the history and all the, all the background parameters of these cities. But the more I study it and the more I look at it and the more I become completely just filled with God's word, it's really an incredible moment in the book of Joshua that describes for us time and time again the incredible security that we have in our Lord and Savior. Now remember, 400 years, the children of God, those Jewish individuals, were put into slavery. When Moses walked them out through the, through the Red Sea and into that wilderness experience, understand they had no sheriff. They had no police department. They had not one judge, no jury, no way really of having any bearings on how do you keep a couple of million people from, from not stealing and murdering and all the other things. I mean, it, it, it could have been a chaotic situation. So from the very beginning, our Bible begins to lay down certain laws for us. Certainly the commands are obviously one of the big anchors of that covenant, that, that covenant law that we have with our God. But there were other updates that, had to been, that, that needed to be made along the way. I'm really excited. I shared with you the four or five new babies that we have in our church. And uh, here just in a few weeks, we're going to start seeing some of them already taking their first steps. Now, I think it's a little competition between some of the families to see who's going to be the most athletic. Because some of the parents are already taking their finger and trying to lead them and help them and coaching them along. Not that anyone's competitive about their children. Can I hear an amen to that? But it's, it's kind of that picture. The children of God, once they were released out of Egyptian slavery, had to have step-by-step instruction on how God felt about certain things and his requirements for them. That same law, much of it has been passed down, obviously, in the same covenant that we have with God to the day in which we live. And so there were baby steps. How do we keep them from killing each other? So God laid down the value of life. How do we keep them from stealing so God had to lay down certain law about, hey, here, here's, here's how I feel about, here's the punishment for, here's how we adapt and deal with stealing. Here's how we deal with adultery. Here's how we deal with one after another situations that came up for these people as they were wandering. And again, it became very evident that God was the author of life, the creator of life, the sustainer of life, and God gives us in, these incredible life-giving values. Now, two, two background passages I want to read. If you want to turn there and you've got quick hands today, you certainly can. Keep your place in Joshua. I want to read to you from Exodus chapter 21. I'm going to read two verses for you out of Exodus chapter 21. I want to read verses 12 and 13. Listen to what God's word says. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. 
Well, that gives us some indication of how God feels about murder, doesn't it? And the cost of murder. Some of you are pro-capital punishment. Some of you are anti-capital punishment. I would just encourage you, read God's word. Maybe our values, I guess that's your choice, need to be closely aligned with God's values. Maybe our beliefs need to be incredibly invested and staked into God's word as to how he views certain things about murder. Listen to verse 13, Exodus 21 and verse 13. However, if it is not done intentionally and God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place. Notice that, flee to a place that I will designate. I also want to read to you from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 19. That's Deuteronomy chapter 19. I just want to read verses 4 and 5. Here's what God's word says in Deuteronomy 19, 4. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally, without malice, a forethought. For instance, in verse 5, a man go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood. And as he swings his axe to fell a tree, a head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. And so this morning, as we read, and we'll just read the first five or six verses so that you and I can get the flavor. This chapter only has nine verses, but they are action-packed and they're important not only for us to learn about these cities, but have a better symbolic picture of how Christ puts us in a very similar situation in our Christian lives of, as an anchor of security and safety and refuge. Let's begin reading in God's word, chapter 20 of Joshua, beginning in verse number one. Now, as we read, I want you to see that verse number one has very little in it. In fact, over only what, five or six words. But it is very significant. It's significant because everything that's about to be recorded here, this plan, it's clearly articulated who it's coming from, and that is God himself. This is God's plan. This is God's heart. This is God's makeup. It's his character. And he is going to send this command to Joshua, and Joshua, therefore, to enforce and to pass along to the several million people that he's leading into a whole new land. They've been through now 40 plus years of wandering, seven plus years of battles and skirmish, and they're now at the point of inhabiting. Each tribe has been given a special place, and now that they are going to be cohabitating, spread across a much broader land, it's important for them to have very strict guidelines. And it's important in certain situations because God has laid down such a mandate that, hey, blood for blood, you be careful that you don't murder anyone. We're not going to stand for that. You murder, the blood that you take can only be avenged by the blood that you're going to shed. In order to balance that, God comes back and he says, but I am aware that there's going to be these moments when things just happen. Was it your fault? Was it planned? Was it premeditated? Was it cooked up? Was it motivated by any spite or anger? It was just an accident. It was one of those things that happened. And in those situations, someone's going to be coming for you. 
a blood avenger. We studied the book of Ruth, I don't know, a couple of years ago, very carefully. And one thing we saw in that book is from that standpoint, in this day and time, your tribe, your clan, your family was everything to you. In fact, if a male heir died and left a wife or left a wife and children, the next male heir in the family had to step up. We had two designations for that in the English language. One of them was Goel, G-O-E-L in the English language. That speaks more to this role. If someone murders someone in your family, then the next closest male heir would go and avenge that death. They would take that person's life. The other one was kinsman redeemer. Those individuals would take on the husband's role with that woman, take over the property of an existing family member to keep that property, take care of those children. And we see out of that, it's deep and invested. And this is what the people believed. That if someone kills one of our family, our next closest male heir will avenge that death. They are the blood avenger. And so God is saying in verse number one, let's read these verses now. He's saying first, and the Lord said to Joshua, that's significant. Look at verse two, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge. As I've instructed you through Moses, God just reminding them, this is not anything new. In our Bibles, we know he's already talked about it in Exodus 19, Exodus 21, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy uh, uh, 19. And now we see this coming into full plan, into full action, as the children are setting up these cities all over this new conquered land. The Bible goes on to say in verse number three, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally, the NIV uses two words here, unintentionally or accidentally, they may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. And when they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case. Now we have a couple of lawyers in here today. I'll not point them out for fear that I might need them or fear of retribution that they'll throw me in jail or do something to me. But I wrote down grand jury. More on that in a moment. At the city gate to stand at the entrance and state their case, grand jury. Before the elders of that, let's keep reading of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. Look in verse five, if the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the one chasing them, the one trying to take their life, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. Verse six, they are to stay in that city until they have stood trial. There I wrote in my little margin, trial by peers, trial by jury before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at the time, then they may go back to their own home in their town in which they fled. Jump down to verse number nine. We'll come back to the name, these names in just a moment. Any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to the, these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood, avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. 48 cities 
the Israelites, the priests, those responsible for godly things, for temple worship, for worship in general, 48 designated cities were set up across the promised land. Six of those God has called to be cities of refuge. Now, I just want you to get this flavor. Don't want you to get caught up on trying to figure out exactly where they are. I just want you to see, please see a big picture here and nothing more. We're going to put up a map. Here it is. And look at the six red dots. We've overlaid six red dots. When you look at this promised land, east and west, you see that these six cities were set up, spread out, pretty much equally across the land where someone would be fairly close if they needed one of these cities of refuge because there wasn't much time. Someone's killed my brother. Someone's killed my brother-in-law. Someone's killed my dad. Someone's killed my, my uncle. And hey, the blood avenger would pack his bag, he would pack his weapon, and he would be on the way to avenge the blood of the family member very quickly. So if there was an accidental death, then this individual needed to get on the road to the safety and refuge of one of these cities of refuge and to do it very quickly. Therefore, it was important that there just wasn't one location, but God says, I want there to be six locations and I want all of these to be maintained in a similar fashion and a similar way. Now, I just want to remind you before we break these verses down into three little quick parts, I want to remind you that our Bibles teach us from the very beginning how God feels about the importance of life. In fact, when we start reading in Genesis 1-1, we only have to come just a few chapters. When we come to Genesis 9-6, the Bible says, whoever sheds human blood, God says, by humans shall their blood be shed. And then Genesis 9, 6 finishes by making this statement, for in the image of God has God made mankind. One of the things that is such a huge responsibility to the church in this day and culture that we face, this crumbling tidal wave culture, is what parents teach their students, what churches teach their students in student ministry and what we're teaching people in general about life issues. Right now, before our Supreme Court, the issue of abortion is on the docket. Right now, we see across our nation case after case of mercy killing. We see, have seen a huge increase in suicide. And I just want to encourage you today, God did not leave you and he did not leave me without hope in these areas of knowing how we should believe and how he feels and what his commands are about each one of these areas. And it starts with this foundational truth of how valuable life is to our God. God says again in the very first book of the Bible, I created life. I created human, human beings. And therefore, they're every one of them extremely important to me. Whether they're a living, viable child in a womb, whether they are a, a, a decrepit individual on a bed, life is precious to me. 
And so with that in mind, what I've done is just divide these little nine verses up into three sections. I hope you'll jot them down with me as I just mention each one of them and some incredible facts about these different stages of the city themselves and getting there and the names of these cities. Let's start off with what the text really gives us, some information about fleeing to the city, about individuals getting there and the makeup of those cities. Again, we just saw a map of how they were strategically located. These cities were pretty much close to everyone. Now, when it comes to getting to the city, there's two very important terms that you may just want to jot down in some white space. There was the slayer, and then there was the avenger. There was the individual that this accident had happened, they were involved, that would be the slayer. There were certain principles that applied to them and certain things that were important to them. And then there was the other one that was the pursuer, the avenger, the next of kin, the avenger of blood, if you will. And they were both no doubt making their way to the city. The avenger always hoped he got there before they reached the city gates. Because once they got to those city gates and they were admitted by those elders at the gate, there was no touching that individual from that point on. They were going to be tried in that city. The investigation of what occurred was going to be held in one of those six locations. And it's a little bit interesting because we see our Chick-fil-A forecursor, our forerunner to all those men that drink coffee there, to all of our men groups that drink coffee early in the morning at McDonald's, to all of our men's group that yak yak at Juicy's in different places. Here we are. Here's the biblical forerunner for all of that. We have these elders of the city. And in these locations, these men would gather. There would be land transactions. There would be all kinds of things that took place. By the way, the Bible tells us that there had to be roads built to every one of these cities. And not just any road, but a road of a certain width. Three of these cities, the last three mentioned, are in mountain areas. Areas that have high elevation. They had to cross many Negev streams, tributaries. There had to be bridges built to each one of these. Oh, and by the way, the Bible tells us that these, each one of these cities had to have clear signage. Miklat, the Hebrew word for, for refuge. And it had to give clear direction. Miklat, this way. Miklat, this way. Miklat, this way. And those signs had to be maintained. Even though it was the, the, the Levitical group that had, was responsible for keeping these roads and cities up, every Jewish man had to give one day a year to road work. You know, I hear people from time to time complain about the conditions of roads. Maybe that would be a deal a real improvement in America if all of our men had to spend one day a year on road duty. How about that? You don't hear any amens to that, do you? Because Americans, not only do we want to work, but we don't want to pay any taxes to keep the roads up. Amen? There won't be any amens to that either. But there was a real investment in the community of God toward these cities. Signs, bridges, roads, they all had to be taken care of. Oh, and by the way, the Bible tells us there were also to be runners placed on each one of these roads. 
as someone was near exhaustion or they were tired, there would be runners periodically placed at each one of these, these, these locations. And that runner is trained somewhat like our hello team. We never, or we should never, point when someone asks us a location in our church. Hey, can you tell me where the children's first and second grade classroom is? Hey, yeah, it's uh, about 800 feet from here, down two flights of stairs, through the preschool area, through that winding hall, uh, past two bathrooms, and then take a right there and go around. No, 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 no. We need to walk and escort that person to every room. And so as these individuals were in a hurry, running for their lives, hoping they could get to these cities of refuge, exhausted. There were incredible roads, the best of the day. There were signage. There were runners to try to help each one of them get home. And I just ask you, is that not an incredible picture of the refuge that the Lord Jesus offers us? As you and I come in a situation in our lives, many times in quite a mess, it's our Lord that seems to always point us in the right direction through someone proclaiming the word, through the word of God, through someone sharing the gospel with us. And, and again, for each one of us that are so invested in seeing people come to Christ, it's important that we run with them and walk with them. Not that we just point them to the direction, but we walk along with them on that journey. And the incredible symbolic picture here. Now that next to Ken is on his way. He wants only the worst for those. He wants to catch them and apprehend them. He wants to punish them. And it's such a vivid picture that you and I have an evil one in our lives that want us to pay for every sin that we've ever committed. There's that evil force that is in pursuit of us, hoping that we'll make misstep after misstep. And he, the Bible tells us in John 10 what? Satan has clear directive. He comes to steal. He comes to maim. He comes to kill. We need to take these pictures and stow them away in the very depths of our heart. Well, quickly, the fleeing to the cities. Jot a second picture down, and that's the dwelling in the cities of refuge. What about when they arrive? Go down to verse number four, and again, the Bible says, you flee to one of these cities, they stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders. It's really kind of a picture of our grand jury. It's the first hearing. It's the, it's the first rendition of the facts. Here, here's a group of men that are going to listen to what has happened. And they're going to make a decision right there. Do we send this on to a jury? Do we send this on to peers, let them hear more evidence? Or is there really not enough here to say, hey, we sense that, hey, this was not, an un, uh, this was not unintentional. We sense this was not an accident. We sense there's something wrong here. And so if the individual was in that category, then they would be turned out. They would be turned over to the blood, blood avenger and they would let the, the law of the flesh take place. But if they sense that there was enough facts that, hey, this needs to go to a, 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 peer, a peer group, a trial, if you will, a, a, a jury, if you will. And ladies, we know that only took place by men, sorry, in this day and time. At least we made some progressive movement in that area. But a group of men would sit and listen. Another group 
at another stage to every single one of those. Verse 4 and 6 give us those two incredible attributes. Now, how long did they stay? I mean, here's an individual that was taken in. They were housed. If they didn't have a trade, they would be trained and provided a trade because everyone worked inside the walls. Even if they had to go outside, this individual would have never, never been sent outside the walls. They would have practiced a trade inside the walls. And how long would they stay? It's interesting here how the NIV, the language that it uses, go down to, go down to verse number six and look at this. How long do they stay? I mean, is it a year? Is it six months? Is it five years? And it gives us that information in the middle of verse six. Until the death of the, high, the next high priest. The high priest that's serving, before the next one takes place at that death, those individuals, and look at how it's worded here in the NIV, then they may go back. Do you see that at the end of verse number six? There was an option there. The period of incarceration or safety, if you will, of the walls could be released at the death of the current high priest. But it wasn't mandated. The individual could stay there longer if they chose. They could continue to reside there, but that was the release point. At least that's what the Bible tells us. So they had these two juries, the grand jury, if you will, the group of elders, the trial of peers, a, a, a group, a, a decision was final at that standpoint. We believe this was accident. It was unintentional. There, were, there was no premeditation to it. Therefore, this individual is released and able to serve and work and they'll remain under our protection until such time as the high priest dies, then they can return to their place uh, of where they, their, their, their family, or they can stay here. They can choose to stay here and continue to work. You know, as I was thinking about this dwelling, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, as you and I stand before an almighty God, there's really no question about our innocence or guilt, is there? Every one of us, guilty. Every one of us is guilty of committing sin that sent our Savior, an innocent Savior, to the cross. And that's why our Bibles are so clear as it lays down again that we are what? Our Savior is, was one that knew no sin, but he what? He became sin on our behalf so that you and I might go free. Are you thankful to be a follower of Christ today? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I don't know how we could get a more incredible picture of the Lord and Savior, despite our guilt, taking us in into the place of security and refuge. Jot down this last, this, this last element quickly. Not just the fleeing of the city and dwelling into the city, but the names of the city. Oh, by the way, just as an extra here, just want to throw this out. I read verse 9 a moment ago. You know, in our New Testament, we come to that point where Paul, we kind of say, hey, uh, Paul's broken the ice for salvation to Gentiles. You probably didn't catch how radical verse 9 was. I mean, in a Jewish-dominated culture, in Jewish land, 
in Jewish cities, in tribal law. Did you notice in verse 9 there was a provision made for everyone? Every sojourner. Pastor, are you saying a Hittite, a man that was a pagan that didn't even believe in Jehovah God could go to one of these cities? You look at it, you see the language there in verse 9. The Bible again says, every single one, any foreigner residing among you, they were welcome there. Pastor, you mean a Phoenician person could go there? Yes. Pastor, you mean a Jebusite could go there? Yes. Pastor, you mean like a, a person from Moab could go there? Yes. The refuge was for everyone. What a blessing. For those of us that are not VIPs in the world, that God invites us in, in terms of our salvation and security and love and nurture, Incredible. Well, the naming of these cities, let's just mention them quickly. You see, there are six cities that are mentioned. Look in verse 7 and 8. There's, there's six of these cities. Now, notice they're grouped into the west and the east. The western, the eastern. The eastern are going to be the last three mentioned, more the mountaintop, those elevated cities. And just quickly, what they mean, what they represent. Look in verse 7, Kadesh. We know that's close to the Hebrew word, kadash, holiness. It means righteousness. Then you see the word Shechem, the city, the location, Shechem. It means shoulder. As Americans, we understand that because we don't say put your finger into it. We say put your shoulder into it. It's, it, it represents strength, if you will, or, or stamina. And then Hebron. There it is, that third location representing fellowship. It means fellowship. When we go into the house of the Lord, there needs to be fellowship. That's what we long for in broken relationships. That's what we long for. Hey, we need to be over that. We need to be reunited. We need to have better fellowship. And then look at these elevated cities. There they are in verse number eight. Bezer, the first one. That city, the name means stronghold or fortified. Ramoth means heights or lifted up. It represents kind of what it was, a city in, in, in that, that was lifted up or a mountaintop uh, existence. And then Goland, there it is, means separation. Separation of land and mountains, maybe more of the location. And today, I, I really wanted to talk to you about these cities and the incredible picture and what they mean and what they can mean to us. I haven't talked to you as much uh, as I do our more midweek worshipers every Wednesday morning. That group probably knows more, a lot more things about my personal spiritual life than most of you do. But one of the things I've talked to them uh, along the way is whether it be early in the morning or when I first get to the office, those, those first few minutes, one of the things that I try to do almost every single day is set up some time for just a personal devotional. Not that I'm trying to look for three Ps to alliterate a point. Not that I'm looking for something to share at the Eternal Chapel service or, you know, a sermon that's coming up or a particular study or, in, in this case, what I'm working on now, a book text from out of the book of Joshua. But 
but what is God saying to me individually? Not even as a pastor, just as a believer. And several months ago, God took me to 2 Samuel. And he took me back to that time when David and Saul were about to transition. Saul was demented, warped, all kinds of issues going on in his life. Here's a young lad uh, by the name of David. He burst onto the scene, uh, Goliath, uh, killer, uh, giant killer, musician, evidently very handsome, and he, he was going to be the king replacement. And in that transition, there were some tough moments. In fact, we know that David spent several years on the run, hiding in caves and different places. But as that transition was about to unfold, both of them had underlings. Both of them had certain military generals and people. And in that transition, those were tough times because Saul would tell his underlings, those that he was in command of, I want you to go do this. And David would tell his underlings. And, and it's, it, it's, that's kind of how the story of my devotional unfolded because it took me to the story of those underlings. On one side, under the direction of David, you had Ashiel and Joab, two brothers that loved David and loved what uh, he was doing and the new movement of the nation under once he was installed as the king and what the nation of Israel could become. And they were gung-ho. In fact, Ashiel uh, began to try to provoke a fight with one of the military generals under Saul's regime by the name of Abner. And Abner didn't want any part of it. This young punk kept pestering him and bugging him. And so finally, um, uh, uh, Abner just takes his, he takes his sword and he says, look, just to prove to you that I really don't want to fight you, he pulls his sword and he just holds it, the base of his sword behind him and the sword sticking straight out. And of all things, Ashiel makes a run at him. He's going to jump on him. And as he does, that sword pierces him and takes him to his death. Well, we know what the law is. The law is a blood avenger's on his way. And so his older brother, Joab, takes just a few minutes upon hearing of his younger brother's death and he is in hot pursuit. He's in hot pursuit of Abner. And the Bible tells us, and this is where my devotional was unfolding, that Abner ran and it, duh, duh, it, I'm not the sharpest tack, you know. It takes me a little while sometimes to add things up. And it says he ran to the city of Hebron. That sound familiar? It was one of the what? One of the six cities of refuge. But in the middle of my devotional, the writer that had written it stopped and he said, but before I get to the end of this story, I want you to be reminded what David said about Abner's death. And it was like, oh man, how did he die? He was going to a city of refuge. He had the sword pointed out the back. He didn't mean, he was just mocking the kid, saying, look, I don't want to fight. I'm not going to fight you. Here, I'll just put my sword behind my back. And it was like, it was accident that this happened. And he was going to a city of refuge. And, and the writer of this devotional said, and of all things, Ab, I just want you to know before you find out about his death. And it was like, what? And then the writer of this devotional said, and he quoted what David said about Abner's death. And 
in 2 Samuel 3.27, he said, and I quote, David says, this is what our Bible says, that Abner died a fool's death. And then the writer took us back to the scripture. And when Abner arrived at those city gates, rather than going on, going on in and seeking the protection, Joab arrived just about the same time that Abner did. And Joab simply called out to Abner and said, hey, before you go in, I just want to confer with you. So they're standing at the city gate, a city of refuge, a place of safety and security. As Joab approached Abner, the one that had just killed his brother accidentally, evidently he took a smaller knife because the Bible says he had it concealed and he stuck it under the fifth rib and stuck it in his torso and there Abner fell dead at the city gates of Hebron. And how again did David describe that? Abner. He died a fool's death. Why do you think David would say that? He said that because all Abner had to do was pass through those gates and there was an opportunity for safety and security and salvation from all of his problems. But he chose not to do that. And so it ended up costing him. And David looked back historically at that incident and said, you know what that was? That was a fool's death. And I share that with you because in the moment that I read that, the city of refuge and all of those pieces began coming together. And what I've shared with you this morning about that being such a symbolic picture for us. You know what my greatest fear is? My greatest fear is there may be someone here this morning that believes in going right up to the gate is going to be enough for safety, security, salvation, and refuge. And you see, what we know is that that will not be enough to secure your place eternally in the incredible city of refuge with our Lord. Maybe there's a man here today. You're just here because, hey, you just want to please your wife, man. Happy wife, happy life. And she's very religious, and she knows the Lord. And so deep down, sir, maybe you're under the belief today that getting right to the gate is enough. And can I just assure you, in the end, you're going to die a fool's death. Or maybe you're here today, and you're a student and you think, you know what? I've really never made that commitment into a place of security and salvation with my Lord. But my parents, my parents make, I mean, I'm here, aren't I? I, I mean, my, my parents bring me Wednesdays. They bring me Sundays. And, 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 and maybe you believe deep down in your heart that because you come from a godly family, that's going to be enough. And young person, let me tell you something. In the end, you're going to end up dying a fool's death. A fool's death because salvation is so near, so clear, 
of what we're required to do and what our, our Savior is willing to do when we trust him. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's have a time of prayer this morning. Lord, we just thank you for the time that we spend in your word today. I wonder if there's someone here that really needs a city of refuge today. Life has become so, well, it's just a burden. School, work, bills, marriage, the challenges of life. And right now, on their perceptive radar, it is a burden. It is a monster to deal with in their life. And Father, maybe there's someone here today in their heart that they're looking for that place of safety, of serenity, of refuge, a place that they can just take a deep breath and say, Lord, I just need to decompress from all the baggage and all the, all, everything the world has unloaded in my life. And Father, we go back and we stand before that cross and we remember today that each one of us, yes, every single one of us, has been found guilty of sending our Savior to the cross. Our sins added to the bundle of the sins that our Savior died for. Our sins go right in the mix. And so today, I pray if there's someone here that has never trusted the Lord Jesus by faith, believing in him, turning away from their sin and to our Savior for life ahead. Father, I pray that they would ask the Lord Jesus to come into their heart. Our Bible tells us, Lord, you tell us in your word that at that moment when we cry out and call upon your name, we shall be saved. So Father, in this moment, if there be those that do not know the Lord Jesus, that they might come to that place in their life today with that relationship, that new covenant, that faith walk with our Lord. Father, we want to thank you for these weeks that we've invested in the book of Joshua. Different pictures, different life lessons. Such a hard-hitting book, but a book that brings us back to the very core and foundation of who we are in you. So, Father, as we continue now to worship, I pray that you would use, as you have throughout this service, every word that's spoken, every note that is sung, and that your name and your name alone will be glorified. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.